Last week, um, we continued our look at the introduction to the book of Hebrews. The writer in the first four verses gives us a glimpse of the glory of the one who has brought us in these last days the revelation of God, the glory of Christ's office, the glory of Christ's person, the glory of Christ's grace, the glory of Christ's exaltation are all briefly touched on in the first four verses of Hebrews 1 to show why he is superior to all other revelations of God that came before him and culminated with him. And the reason is clear. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, eternally begotten, light of light. So I've titled today's message, Jesus Christ, Better Than the Angels. I've noticed for many years now that people have a fascination with angels. This fascination, of course, goes way back, as we'll briefly look at today, even into the Old Testament. Having looked at the beginning of Hebrews now for a few weeks, I'm beginning to form a picture as to why that might be. And I think it might have something to do with angels having supernatural power without judgment of sin. So here you have this being with supernatural power, but they're not a judge. And so even the world can embrace the idea of angels. Here's a wonderful being, supernatural power, looking out for my best interest, and I don't have to live according to what that angel tells me to do. So it seems to me this may be why there's this fascination with the angelic realm. It deflects, I think, the focus of people away from where it ought to be. An angel is quite simply just a messenger of God. The writer of Hebrews tries to show how our angelic awe needs to be redirected toward Christ himself. So let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, 
who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word this morning. We thank you that by your spirit you inspired this writer to give us your very heart. Let us not take your heart lightly. Let us embrace the truth that we find there and build our lives from this moment forward on the great truths in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have to apologize right off the get-go. <clears throat> There's a word in German, Glück, and it's a lot of what I don't have this morning. So, um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just... I just remember when I'd do something stupid when I was younger, my mom would say, long nicht klug. <laughs> and so, thanks, Isabel. So it can't be, uh, well, gives me an impression of what it might mean. <laughs> but stick, stick with me. I, I, I think that there's, uh, the passage itself um, is worth thinking hard about. And so wherever I fail, spend time looking at the passage uh, because it won't fail. The first thing I want to look at in the passage, um, and basically what we're doing is, is comparing Christ and angels in three different ways. And the first way is that Christ is son and angels are servants. Christ is son, and angels are servants. And I want us to look at, quickly, a Jewish view of the angelic ministry for the law. And the reason I focused on the law was because the writer of Hebrews has just said, all of these prophets, and including Moses, all of these prophets have come and given you a message from God but now Christ has come. And then he makes this transition. And in the Jewish mind, the transition makes perfect sense. Sometimes in our mind, we don't make the connection um, as easily. And so I just want to look at a Jewish reflection on prophetic ministry or the bringing of the law. When we look back at um, God's instructions to make the tabernacle, remember when you read in, uh, Leviticus, God says, here's how I want it built. We see that there are angels um, woven into the veil 
in gold thread. There's gold and purple and blue, beautiful angelic weavings into the veil um, in the tabernacle. And angels were fashioned for gold for the mercy seat, two angels facing one another with their wings above the mercy seat. There was no representation of God in the tabernacle because that was forbidden. And anything that attempted to represent God would only take away from who he is. But there are 273 references to angels in the Old Testament. And they were messengers identified with messages directly from the very throne of God. So just a few references to look at in terms of the angelic ministry of prophecy. Psalm 68 and verse 17 says, here it comes, says that the Lord is among thousands of angels, just as he was on Sinai when he gave Moses the law. So let's read that verse. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. So the Jewish view was that when Moses went up to receive the law from Moses, there were 20,000 and thousands and thousands of angels there, ministering spirits. Then later on in Acts chapter 7, um, we all know the story of when Stephen was martyred and they were saying, Stephen, you have, you have wrong beliefs. And Stephen stands up and gives the most beautiful overview of biblical history uh, in, in Acts chapter 7. And so what, of, what we're reading is part of Stephen's overview of Jewish history in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. It says that the reception of the law was directed through angels. So let's read Acts chapter 7, 51 to 53. Stephen talking to the Jews that were around him. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You are long nick klug. <laughs> you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it and Stephen goes on and said enough until they had had enough and they stoned him to death. Finally, uh, Paul writing about the Jewish, uh, the Jewish idea of uh, angelic uh, ministry of the law. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 9, he says that the law was appointed through angels. So in Galatians chapter 3 verse 19, let's read. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, capital S, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So the Jewish view of an angelic um, ministry in the role of bringing forth messages from God was very clear 
angels were messengers from God. But even the angels were not the only begotten of the Father. And so what I'd like to do is again read Psalm 2 for you. Um, the Son is begotten of the Father. Uh, Stefan read it uh, um, to you earlier. But let's read it again. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together and the Lord against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Do you see the false perception of what the law of God is to the people of the world? God gave us the law to protect us and give us freedom to do what is right. The law breaks bonds of sin. It gives us some guidance in how to live in a way that's God-honoring. But the world looks at the law and, say, and says, no, no, no. These are cords. These are bonds that are tying us down. Let's break them. They tell us we shouldn't murder babies in the womb. We need to get rid of that law. They tell us that men should not marry men and women should not marry women and they tie us down with these cords. No, let's get rid of it. And yet God has placed these things here for our protection. But they're misseen as bonds and cords, chains tying us from freedom. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, confusion. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The son is begotten of the father. I found a neat poem that summarizes Psalm 2 I thought you might appreciate. Thy walls are strength. And at thy gates a guard of heavenly warriors waits. Nor shall thy deep foundations move, fixed on his counsels and his love. Thy foes in vain designs engage. Against his throne in vain they rage. Like rising waves with angry roar that dash and die upon the shore. There's several ways that the Bible describes Jesus Christ as begotten. Jesus Christ is begotten by generation, eternally. So because there's a sun in the sky, we see the sun in the sky because it emits light rays. We talked about that last week, effulgences, rays, radiance. And the sun does not exist without rays. And we do not see the sun apart from the rays. 
If one exists, the other is there. They are co-eternal. So Jesus Christ is begotten eternally. Jesus Christ is begotten by birth. He was given a body, unlike the angels. We see that in verse, verses 6 and 7. It talks about the angels being like winds and fire, but not the Son. He was begotten by birth. And um, for those of you that have ever encountered uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses at your door, this last one is good to know. Jesus Christ is begotten by resurrection as well. So let's look at a couple passages that talk about how Jesus Christ is begotten by being raised from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And that's not exclusively the only passage. Uh, Acts chapter 13 gives the same idea that Jesus Christ is begotten because of his resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 13 verses 32 and 33. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Peter there, pardon me, in his sermon is saying, I believe it's Peter, I should have checked that. Um, don't take my word for it, check it on your own. Be a Berean. Um, he is saying that it is God's raising up Jesus from the dead that caused him to say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So there are many senses in which the son is begotten of the father. The last passage um, that talks about this difference between Christ being son and angels being servants um, is found uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it tells us that because he is the son, eternally begotten, that his reign will never end. And I love this passage because it is a picture-perfect passage of how God uses prophecy. God, in saying, in giving this passage, is not only pointing towards Solomon, but much, much further, he's pointing way ahead to Christ. So these things that he says point forward 30 or 40 years or whatever it is until Solomon is born, but they point 800 years ahead to Christ as well. And we see that both in this passage. It's a beautiful example of how God gives prophecy. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. This is the prophet Nathan speaking to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Look at the beauty of that. Isn't that incredible? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If, look how God did that. Look how, look how, it's just such a beautiful example. If he commits iniquity, which Solomon did, but Christ never did, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. He didn't commit iniquity, but he became iniquity for us. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. True of Christ, not true of Solomon. So you can see the vast difference that the writer of Hebrews is pointing out here between the Son and the angels. The next comparison, Christ is king. And I thought that last passage flowed beautifully into this. Christ is king. Angels are subjects. And he quotes Psalm 45. Look really closely at the wording in this psalm. The writer of Hebrews tells us that God here is speaking to the Son. God the Father speaking to the Son. Keep that in mind. Your throne, O God, who is the Son? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. This is one of the clearest decorations of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. God speaking to God, calling him God, and giving him all the authority of God. And the writer of Hebrews makes that quite plain. So the language of this passage shows that this is no mere messenger. Certainly a messenger, but no mere messenger. There's far more to the sonship of Jesus Christ than, uh, than the prophets that came before or even the angels. The final comparison. Christ is creator. Angels are creatures. Powerful creatures, yes, but creatures nonetheless. Psalm 102 verses 23 to 27. This has been, this psalm is um, widely recognized by Hebrew scholars, and I think probably Christian scholars up until the writing of Hebrews, as one of the most difficult psalms to understand. There is so much going on in this psalm that is so difficult for scholars, people that study these things to wrap their minds around. I think the writer of Hebrews comes along and clarifies it beautifully. But Psalm 102, I wanted to read a little bit more than what is quoted. In Psalm 102, 23 to 27, it says that the suffering servant is the creator of the heavens and earth. Combine this with Isaiah and 
you have a clear picture that the suffering servant is the creator. So let's read Psalm 102, and we'll just expand this quote that the writer of Hebrews gave us. This is the suffering servant talked about. Now, what's interesting about this is that Christianity has not always taken this to be a messianic psalm, a psalm about Jesus Christ. But what's really fascinating is that Jewish rabbis have always taken this to be a messianic psalm. They knew this was a song, a psalm about the Messiah. They didn't know how, but they knew it was a messianic psalm because the writer is suffering. And so they took every psalm where the writer was suffering, whether it be David or whomever, and they said, somehow, this is about the Messiah. And I thought that was fascinating. So here we go. The Suffering Servant, capital S. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. In other words, he died, not of old age. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Do you see the Garden of Gethsemane there? Let this cup pass from me. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Now, this is where some of the confusion comes in. But if you see it as God saying, look, yes, you are dying, but not of old age. But take heart. Your work is eternal. Take heart. Your work is eternal. I know it's hard. I know you're suffering. But your work is eternal. So the heavens and the earth, they will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, suffering servant, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established after you. I think that the writer of Hebrews makes it very plain that the one who suffers is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, of course, the Jewish rabbis won't understand that. They will just continue to be confused by this psalm. But I'm so thankful that the writer of the Hebrews came along and said, no, this is talking about the Son. And so we can take heart in knowing that the writer of Hebrews interpreted this psalm correctly. So the suffering servant is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Then we go uh, over a few pages to Psalm 110 and verse 1. This I found interesting. This is the New Testament's most quoted verse from the Psalms. Four times this verse is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus quoted it in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Matthew 22, 41 through 46. So here's the psalm. Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Um, the Pharisees were getting snobby. And so Jesus decided he was going to ask them, what do you think of this psalm? So let's read what Jesus does with this psalm in Matthew 
22. When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, they knew that answer. They said to him, The son of David. Bam, they had the answer. He said to them, How then does David, in the spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. I wouldn't have. Because the answer is this. The only way that that even makes sense, and Christ knew this, the only way that that even makes sense is somehow the Lord would be a son of David. And not only did he come after David as a son, he was before David from all time as Lord. So Christ knew that was the answer, but the Pharisees could not give that answer because it would have incriminated them and they would have had to recognize that their own scriptures pointed toward the fact that God himself was going to come in the line of David, and he did so in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter quoted this verse in Acts chapter 2, verses 36, sorry, verses 34 through 36. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let, pardon me, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There was no difference. Different titles. Lord, Jehovah, if we want to translate it back, and Messiah. It was not two people. It was one, Jesus Christ, Lord and Messiah. Paul alluded to it several times in his writings particularly in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if I have that quote there. I don't think so. I, I didn't put it there on purpose because I want you to go home and read 1 Corinthians 15 um, or do it now. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's re Paul refers to this scripture. Uh, it's called the resurrection chapter. One of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. It's long. It's worth the read. And then, of course, the writer of Hebrews quoted this verse as well. So a very clear picture that the Messiah that was to come was God himself, the creator of heavens and earth, whereas the angels were just a mere creation of Christ's. So the angels, it says, on the other hand, are only ministering spirits, this is interesting, to those that are not the enemies of the Messiah. It says that God is going to put the enemies of Messiah under his feet as his footstool. And it says that the angels are sent to minister to those that are going to embrace this salvation. God doesn't need anybody to do his work for him. He has done it for his glory and the glory of Christ. And so we've tied up chapter 1 and to summarize thus far is this. 
Every message pales in comparison to the person of Jesus Christ and the message that he gave because he was God. And then he goes on, step one, really, is Christ is superior to the angels. Christ is superior to the angels. That doesn't fit well with cultic doctrines, but Hebrews, none of Hebrews fits well with cultic doctrines. This is the creator. This is God himself come. Seed of David. To be the Messiah, the Savior for the whole world. To die, and in 1 Corinthians 15, to rise again. To reign eternally over a kingdom that will last forever. This is the final messenger that we have the privilege of knowing. Let's pray.